appreciate it, man. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fellowship Greenville this morning. How's everyone doing? Okay, great, great. Thanks. Thanks, Matt. My name is Matt Densky. I'm the student ministry pastor here at Fellowship Greenville. I'm so excited to be here with you this morning, and I want to thank you for coming to worship with us and for coming to <clears throat> receive what I believe God wants us to know from his word and from his spirit this morning. Uh, anyone get caught by day daylight savings time this morning? Because I certainly did. Uh, thank you, one person is honest. The rest of you, come on now. I woke up, uh, my f I didn't plug my phone in last night. And so my family's out of town. My house was dead silent. There was no alarm. I woke up an hour later than I meant to, which really means two hours later than I meant to. And so, yeah, I, first service, I basically parked and walked in, got the mic and came on. <laughs> like, hello. So <clears throat> I've been a little rushed this morning, but it is good to be with you guys this morning. Um, I wanna start this morning by showing a picture. Uh, this is a picture of me and, and two of my children, uh, my two sons, and the one over my shoulder, that's Trent, the one in the uh, foreground, that's Gray. And uh, they are dressed up as Spider-Man. Yes, if, you, if you're really into the Spider-Verse, they're dressed up as Spider-Man and Kid Arachnid. But let, I mean, who's getting caught up on the technicals of this? And uh, no, they're dressed up as, as Spider-Man, Peter Parker and Miles Morales. And uh, they love to dress up. My, my sons love to dress up. They love to pretend. They love to put on costumes. Right now, it is a mix between superheroes, and the top three are um, Spider-Man, Batman, and Black Panther. And the order of whose favorite changes week to week, I never know, but, but I'll come home and see them dressed up as something. Or it's ninjas. They, they like really love ninjas, largely uh, due to Lego's Ninjago show. Anyone? Yes, okay, go Lloyd, Green Ninja, okay. Defeat the Anacondri, all right. Uh, so they love to dress up, they love to, to pretend. And I love, one of my favorite things is coming home and walking into kind of this world that they're living in, to see their imagination I played and to see kind of the reality of what they're doing and to be invited into it. And, and yes, I have an adult-sized Spider-Man costume that makes its debut from time to time. Okay, so I'm, I'm out there with them. And uh, I love it. It's one of my favorite things. Now, something happened this past week that was a little bit different. I came home after a day of work. I, I, I walked through the door, and Trent, my oldest, was dressed up like this. So he's got his, his Spider-Man shirt on, but the sleeves are cut off because I wear sleeveless shirts around the house. He's got this walkie-talkie in his hand, but he's pretending like it's a phone, and he's, he's got my hat on. And when I walk through the door, he says, look, Daddy, I'm dressed up like you this time. I'm a little daddy. Uh, yeah, oh. and it melt. It really, it melt. I was like, oh, "That's so good, buddy!" Like I was, you know, my heart's melted. And then I found Gray, my middle child. He's walking around with some kind of thing. He's pretending to be a phone. And I had just gotten a, a, a recall on the airbag in my truck. I had just gotten it replaced, and he's holding the dealership receipt. Gray, he's two and a half years old. He's walking around the house holding the dealership receipt on the phone, pretending like he's talking to the dealership because he's heard daddy do it. No, 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 yes, yes, no. Like he's walking around, they're playing little daddy. They're dressing up like daddy. I mean, it just melted my heart. And I was thinking about, I was thinking about it this week as I was studying John chapter 19, which is where we're gonna be this morning. And I promise I did not cue them to do this. I wasn't like, guys, I really need kind of an intro for my sermon on Sunday. If you would just, you know, dress up, like, hold that photo. Like I, but I was thinking about it and I thought, man, what's the motive to dress up and, and to play and pretend like this? And for my sons, I, I think it really comes down to it. It, it expresses their heart. 
right? Like they're expressing something within that and they're identifying with someone else. They're identifying with a superhero or with a ninja or this week it was daddy. But it's expressing their heart. They're revealing certain things about their heart. They're, they're revealing who they admire. They're revealing you know, certain things they wanna be or become. They're revealing who they think is really cool and worth dressing up as, or they're identifying with someone else. Like, why did they choose those superheroes? And why you know, Lloyd from Ninjago? And, and why Daddy? Like, it's revealing certain things. And I was thinking about that principle, studying this passage, and I thought, wow, like this is, I believe, what's going on. Did you know that God has done that very same thing? That God has put on a form. Now with God, it's not pretend and it's not fictional and it's not a costume, it's, it's the real deal, but God has put on a form. God who is spirit became tangible. God who is spirit became flesh. God who is divine became human. He left his heavenly realm and stepped into earth. He left his throne and stepped into a manger. God has taken on a form. He has put on the scriptures say. Paul says in Philippians chapter two, Jesus, who was in the form of God, became the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men. God has taken an image for himself. And it's Jesus. His name is Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is a perfect representation for, for sinful men and women to a holy God because Jesus is a man. And Jesus is the perfect representation for a holy God to humanity because Jesus is God. He's the God-man. He's the great in-between. He's the great mediator. He's the great advocate we don't worship a God who can't understand the human plight because God became human. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are. He can sympathize with our weaknesses because of that. The days in your life that are hard and stressful, Jesus understands those. The days in your life when you're tempted and you find yourself just on the cusp of committing some, some act of, of sin, Jesus understands that temptation. The days in your life when you feel the distance between you and the Father, Jesus understands that, spoken by his words on the cross. My God, why have you forsaken me? He gets that feeling. He understands our plight. He has immense empathy for us because he is us. God has a form. Why? Because it expresses the heart of God and it identifies with someone else. It's the same two reasons my sons dress up. It's the same two reasons they take on a form of something else. God's heart is being expressed by him taking on an image. It expresses his radical grace and his transforming love, his endless pursuit of his children, his redemptive narrative that we see all through the scriptures, his plan fleshing out by becoming flesh. And it identifies with someone else. Well, who is God identifying with when he takes on the form of man? He's identifying with us so that he can relate to us and understand better and sympathize and be near. 
John chapter 19, what we'll study this morning, is, is one of the clearest depictions of the image of God, the image of Jesus in the flesh, and all these roads kind of leading to one place. John, as we'll see in chapter 19, has all these thoughts he's trying to piece together, thoughts from the Old Testament, thoughts from his own gospel, his own writings, and he's kind of brought them down, down these paths, and they're all converging into this intersection. So there's a lot going on this morning. John is really building in the layers of, of imagery and, and figurative and, and literal and symbolism, and it's all coming to a head right here in John 19. Last week, Charlie taught out of John 18. Great sermon. If you haven't listened to it, please go ahead and do so. Um, but he taught out of John 18, and where we're at in John's gospel is that the religious leaders of Jesus' time, the, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' time, to say they disliked Jesus would be such a weak attempt to get at their feelings towards Jesus. They, they, they hated this man. They, they had a disdain for this man. They despised Jesus. Why? Because Jesus, God in the flesh, has utterly disrupted the hold they had of power and, and persuasion and status in their culture, in their religious system. Jesus has disrupted it all. He's gaining a following, he's gaining popularity, he's teaching with authority, he is revealing the heart of God and it doesn't quite match up to how the religious leaders have presented it thus far, steeped in their legalistic ways and the burdens they place on people. And he's disrupting all of that with a message of grace and love and hope and truth and they hate him for it. Their envy and jealousy of him and his popularity drives them to murder. And the hypocrisy that we see in the religious leaders is full on display, even all the way back in chapter five, when they get upset with Jesus for, for performing a miracle on the Sabbath, and the, their very next step is, maybe we should hold a meeting and plot his murder on the Sabbath. The hypocrisy of these religious leaders, it's all coming to a head. So they want to be, to be done with Jesus. Charlie taught last week, They've arrested Jesus, they've come up with this plan, they, they have an insider in Jesus' group, Judas, who's willing to betray Jesus. And they tell the religious leaders at the right time and the right place, and so the soldiers come and arrest Jesus. And, and the Jewish leaders put Jesus through, through this trial of sorts, and it focuses on the, the religious aspects of their claims. And Charlie pointed out last week, the, the, the Jewish leaders had to violate 18 of their own laws just in order to have this trial. And so there's no integrity, there's no substance to this trial. It's not an upholding of justice. It's simply because they hate Jesus and want him dead. That's John 18, and, and the end of 18 leads Jesus to come before a man named Pilate who was a Roman governor. And so it moves from the religious focus of their claims to now the political and legal focus of their claims. All the way into John 19, we have Jesus and Pilate. And that's where we're gonna pick up this morning. John chapter 19, verse one. I'm gonna read a few verses and then we'll kind of go back and, and open them up a bit. Pilate, took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, to them being the crowds. So right now the, the religious leaders and, and the Jewish people are, are kind of at Pilate's 
place, his fortress, and, and they're in this area, and Pilate has been talking with them about Jesus. He goes back out to them, and he says to them, I'm bringing him out that you may know I find no guilt in him. This is actually the second declaration that Pilate has made about finding no guilt in Jesus. In other words, there is no legal precedent for why he deserves capital punishment as you have brought him for. I don't find any guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe and Pilate said to the crowds, behold the man. Very famous very famous phrase, behold the man. Now there's a lot going on here, so let's, let's unpack some of it. When Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged, this is a Roman method of, of torture and, and beating. Now Rome, uh, their method of execution for capital punishment was crucifixion, which, which most of us probably know that. Now they didn't invent crucifixion, but they certainly perfected it. And part of their process of, of the crucifixion was they, they had this... Um, punishment, this preemptive punishment for criminals preliminary to the crucifixion. And there were three levels to this, and the most severe level was what Jesus receives here. And it was almost always associated with capital punishment. And so Pilate is really like, I'm gonna make him go through the worst things possible, even though I don't find him guilty. I'm not ready to crucify him yet, but we'll put him through these, these things. And so what Jesus endured here is, is a Roman method of, of brutal beating and torture uh, in which it, it was 40 whips on the back of Jesus minus one. It was known as the 40 minus one or 39 lashes. And that minus one was kind of this act of mercy by Rome. Uh, and, and it was really designed to bring, to bring you right up to the point of death with, without actually killing you, although some people did die simp- just because of this beating long before the crucifixion. And so what they would do is they would bring the criminal out and they would strip them down and, and they would take both of their hands and there would be a singular pole there and they would tie their hands around the pole. And the object of this was to stretch the skin on the back as tight as it could possibly be so that when they would come and whip the victim, it would, it would inflict the optimal damage because the skin is just already pulled tight. And the whips they used were made of leather and there would be multiple strands of leather within these whips. And those strands would have attached in them jagged bits of metal or sheep bone, these, these sharp bits of bone tied in. And so you would have your, your criminal stretched out, flayed out, and, and the Roman soldiers would come and whip kind of in a diagonal pattern on the victim's back. And you can imagine as the leather cords wrap around the torso and those objects kind of find their place in the skin as as the soldiers would pull back the damage that this would inflict on a tightly stretched back. Some church historians even describing the brutality of this is enough to even reveal some some vital organs. This was not simply a a whip. It, It was designed to tear and claw and remove material. And so the purpose of this was really twofold, this this method of beating. One was it was meant to bring a victim all the way to the point of death without actually killing them. In other words, it was to shortcut the crucifixion process because Rome figured out if we simply crucify victims with no beating, then it could last for days upon the cross. We don't have time for that. And so this was a fast track towards the execution. Let's weaken the prisoner first and then crucify them. And the other purpose of this was to get a confession. If they're hiding something, this method of torture will surely drive it out. 
And so the Roman soldiers would often whip and prompt the, the criminal, confess, confess. And yet Jesus was not guilty. There was nothing to confess. And so Jesus was silent during this, this beating. So that's what Pilate has just had Jesus endure. They flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. And so they found you know, a bush with flexible branches or a vine perhaps with thorns. And they made this crown and stuck it on Jesus's head. Not, probably not so much for torture, although it would have hurt, but, but more so for mockery. And they took a purple robe and put it on his back, again, for mockery. The Roman system, and certainly Pilate, had no respect for the Jews, no affinity, no affection. They, they, they looked at them in belittling tones, and they're mocking not only Jesus in this passage, but the Jewish leaders who have brought Jesus to them. And so they're making this, this king out of Jesus because as the Jewish leaders brought Jesus to Pilate, this was their claim. This man has made himself a king of the Jews, which would have been worthy of death because there's no king but Caesar in Rome. But as Pilate is beating him and talking to him, he realized, man, this is not a king. There's no threat here, which is why he repeatedly pronounces, I find no guilt in him. I don't understand why you've brought him to me. But the Roman soldiers put a crown on Jesus, a crown of thorns, a purple robe, the symbol of royalty. It's very expensive to dye purple. And so it was, it was a royal color. Kings had this color. And then they struck Jesus with their hands. So even after the, the, the whipping and the, and the torture that he endured and after the crown and the robe on his back, as they're bringing Jesus back, they begin to strike him with their hands, their fists. If you can imagine clenching your fists tight and with all your might, finding its impact on the face of our Lord Jesus. This is what the soldiers were doing. Sometimes this was even a game among Roman soldiers. They would sometimes even blindfold the criminals so that they would have no, no time to, to brace for the punch. Very cruel. They struck him with their hands. Pilate goes out to the crowds. I'm bringing him back out that you, may find, that you know I find no guilt in him. In other words, we just put him through the 39 lashes. He didn't confess a thing. He didn't say anything. I'm bringing him out so that you know I don't find guilt in him. Pilate's famous phrase, behold the man. Now you may, you may think that's odd, and I certainly do, because they've put the crown on him, they put the robe on him. You would kind of expect Pilate to say, behold the king, behold your king, because he's dressed like a king. They've given Jesus this image of a king, and yet that's not what Pilate says. Pilate says, behold the man. What Pilate doesn't realize is that he is speaking truth and wisdom far beyond his comprehension. Because what's going on in this passage is that God's plan and God's agenda and God's redemptive purposes are being advanced through the corrupted political leader like Pilate Pontius. When he declares, behold the man, he is speaking truth. Because again, remember how we began this message, Jesus is not only a man, but the, representa the representation of all men and women. Paul in Romans chapter five calls Jesus the second Adam. In other words, Jesus is the representative of the human race. Through his sacrifice, all may find life. He is the representation of humanity. 
And Pilate brings him out and says, behold the man, this mocking tone. Here's your king, here's the man you've brought me. Look at him, he's no threat to Caesar. You're telling me this man is a king? Behold the man. And it's so accurate because Jesus is not only a man, but the man to represent all men and women. He's God in the flesh, in the form of man, revealing God's heart and identifying with us. Paul, place, uh, Pilate places on Jesus here a crown of thorns and a purple robe to mock him as king. I was studying this passage and I, I, I just couldn't help but be drawn to the beginning, to Genesis chapter three. God has created heaven on earth and Adam and Eve had perfect harmony with one another. There was no sin, they had no guilt and no shame, no insecurities with one another and they had perfect harmony with God. And there was no presence of sin. And so the relationship was pure and perfect. God would often go on walks with them in the garden, the scriptures say. And then Adam and Eve, of course, disobeyed God in chapter three. And God's creation, heaven on earth, became heaven and earth. There was this tearing in his creation that he would begin to repair. And it all culminates in Jesus. But I was thinking about Genesis chapter three because when Adam and Eve sinned, God pronounced some curses upon this. Sin has entered the world and now there's curses. And one of those curses, God curses the ground itself. And he says this, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Genesis 3, 17 and 18. In other words, God is saying to Adam, listen, you're gonna work the ground for food. This is how you're gonna live, you're gonna farm but the ground is gonna produce food for you, but it's gonna come at a cost, a cost of labor, a cost of sweat by your brow. You're gonna have to work this ground. Because of your sin, the very earth is changing, and now it will produce thorns and thistles and make your work that much harder. The thorn was a symbolic representation of the sin that happened in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve and God. The severing of that harmony, the disruption of God's creation. The thorn is the symbol of the curse. And Pilate, without even realizing what he's doing, is bestowing on Jesus, the man, the crown of thorns, the symbolic representation of our curse due to sin. Jesus is not just holding thorns. He's, he's not just, you know, they didn't just poke him. They crowned him with thorns. Jesus is crowned with our curse. He is symbolically standing here, innocent and free, free of sin, free, free of anything to be condemned. He is symbolically standing here as a man, the image of mankind, holding our curse upon his head, put there by Pilate himself. John wants us to see this and make this connection. This is like Jesus the king is, is, is being presented. This is his glorification as king. Here's his robe and his crown and it's nothing like we would think it would be because Jesus is crowned with the curse, the curse of sin, the curse of mankind. Look at Isaiah chapter 50, verse six. Isaiah prophesies this 700 years before this moment. This is what Isaiah says. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Isaiah is prophesying about Jesus upon the day of his crucifixion, what we just read. I gave my back to those who strike 
my cheeks to those who would pull out my beard. I didn't hide my face from the disgrace and the spitting. Isaiah 52, verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Isaiah is seeing a glimpse 700 years into the future about this day, and he's looking at Jesus, and he's prophesying these things. And he says, Jesus will be beyond recognition, his image so marred, he won't look like a human anymore, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. This is what Jesus is enduring for us because he loves us, yes. It expresses God's heart and to identify with us. Well, how is Jesus identifying with us here? I think what, I think what John is presenting and the way he's presenting it in his gospel, I think John wants us to understand what Jesus looks like physically on the outside right here, a disgrace, appalling to look at, beyond recognition, marred image and form of man. It doesn't even look like a person anymore because of the beating that the Roman soldiers have given him. His face is black and blue and bloody and swollen, blood coming down his face from the crown of thorns being pressed into his skull, the robe on his back, blood trickling on the, on the floor where he's standing. Oh, we don't wanna look at this. What Jesus is physically, outwardly here, is the image of sin inwardly in our souls. God has created men and women in his image, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and the effect that sin has on that image and on our relationship with God is it distorts it, it deforms it, it mars it, it corrupts it, it corrodes it. It's appalling to look at the effect of sin is so destructive in our lives. Jesus is physically and outwardly the symbol of what sin does for us inwardly in our image. And he's taking all of this on right now to identify with us and wears the crown of the curse in our place. Jesus heals the curse of man by becoming the curse of sin himself. Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin. It's not just that he took on our sin, he became the curse to nail it to a cross, to put it to death once and for all. Jesus heals the curse of man by becoming the curse of sin. This is plan A, this is not plan B. It's easy to read this passage or this section of the Bible and think, wow, man, how did it get so far off? Surely this couldn't have been God's plan. This has been God's plan from the beginning. This is not plan B. God didn't send Jesus to earth and then kind of look away and look back and say, oh, they're about to kill him? No, no, this is plan A. Jesus heals the curse that happened in Genesis 3 by becoming the curse, as we see in John 19. He's crowned with the curse. He takes on the image of the curse. His outward appearance reflects what happens to our inward souls due to sin. It's appalling, it's beyond an image that's recognizable, it's corrupted, what happened? He became the curse himself. Verse six, you might think there might be some pity 
at this image when they see Jesus like this, and there's not. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him. I don't find guilt in him. Third pronouncement of no guilty, of not guilty. Now this was, again, Pilate, Pilate's attempt at mockery. The Jewish leaders had no authority to actually take someone on their own and kill him and crucify him. The, 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 the method of crucifixion was a distinctly Roman method. Jews did not prefer to lift someone up to kill them. They preferred to put someone down, to push someone down. They, they preferred stoning. Seen throughout the Old Testament, where they, they, they would push someone down and, and stone them. That's their method of, of execution. And Pilate, who keeps saying, I don't find him guilty. If you want him dead so bad, then yourselves, you yourselves take him and crucify him, which they couldn't do. It's this mocking gesture of, I'm gonna tell you to do something I know you can't do. You're not allowed to crucify him. This is a Roman thing. You don't have authority to crucify him, but if you want him dead, do it, even though you can't. Like, it's, it's mockery. And so the Jews respond with, the Jewish leaders respond with, Listen, we have a law. You may not find him guilty, but we do. We have a law. And according to our law, according to our law, he is deserving of the death penalty. He ought to die. Now, this is a reference to Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. In Leviticus 24, 16, it says, if someone blasphemes, if someone claims to be God, if someone claims to be divine, equal with God, they need to be put to death because we only have one God. So the Jews are, are citing their Levitical law, their Old Testament law, and they reveal that in the back half of this verse. Listen, you may not find him guilty, but we do. We have a law and he ought to die according to our law because he has made himself the son of God. That's what they say. And so perhaps the, the Jewish leaders were sensing, man, Pilate has said now three times he doesn't find him guilty. We're, we're, it's slipping through our fingers. We're right here, man. We've tried to get this guy murdered forever. We're right here. It's at our fingertips, and Pilate keeps saying not guilty. And, and maybe that stress caused them to reveal kind of the ace in their sleeves, so to speak. This has been their motive all along. How did they bring Jesus to Pilate? Some false claim. This man wants to be a king, king of the Jews, and we know there can be no king but Caesar. So see, according to Roman law, you gotta kill him. Well, Jesus was not trying to become this physical king to rule from a physical throne in Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders are making that claim, but that's not Jesus' agenda. And now, because I think they sense that they're about to lose it, their, their true heart comes out. No, 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 we have a law and he should die because he's claimed to be the son of God. Ooh. I mean, it's, it's the slip of the tongue. That's why they hate Jesus. He's made himself equal with God, this man. He's said things and done things that puts him on the level ground with God. We can't accept that. We need him dead. Now, this is interesting because up to this point, Pilate, has not been intimidated by Jesus. He's been perplexed by Jesus, some of Jesus' silence in, in his interview at the very end of 18. He's been confused by Jesus, 
But more than anything, I don't think he views Jesus as a threat at all. I think he is looking at Jesus as kind of this pitiful man who, who got caught up in the wrong circles and now they're trying to leverage the political power of Rome to put him to death. But look, all of a sudden, Pilate's demeanor changes towards Jesus. It's like, all of a sudden it's different. When they claim this man has made himself the son of God, verse eight, Pilate heard this statement and he was even more afraid. All of a sudden, Pilate moves from mockery, confusion, kind of this belittling of Jesus and the Jewish people to fear. It's one of the most powerful men in the area. And all of a sudden he's afraid, why? And he ends the conversation abruptly with the crowds. Look, verse nine, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? Where are you from? It's like all of a sudden, behold the man, here he is, this pitiful excuse for a man and your king. And they say, no, 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 you gotta kill him. He's made himself the son of God. And Pilate says, what? And he brings him right back into his quarters and talk, where are you from? Tell me now, where are you from? Why is Pilate all of a sudden afraid? What is this powerful Roman figure who's kind of toyed with this thing? Why is now he fearing? Well, it's because in, in Roman culture, they were very superstitious. And when you dig into Roman religion, they had a lot of views and a lot of different gods. But one of their views was, it is possible for a deity, a divine being, to have a human representative. In other words, Sometimes in their way of thinking, a, a, a divine being, a deity, could have a human counterpart or a human representative. And if you harm them, it's like you're offending the deity itself. And so when the Jews claim he's made himself the son of God, Pilate's mind goes into Roman thinking, what? He's a deity or he represents a deity? And now he's thinking, I just beat him to a pulp. And now you tell me, now you play with your true motives? You're not here because you think he's a king. You're here because he's claimed to be divine. That's why you want me to kill him. And then I, I think Pilate's mind probably started going back to his wife's warning. When his wife comes to him and says, I had a dream about this man. Don't have anything to do with him. He is righteous. You know, I think Pilate is recalling this conversation with his wife and he's putting all this together and he's realizing, what have I done? Who is this man? Is he more than I thought? Maybe I, I bit off more than I bargained for and fear comes over Pilate and he prompts the question, where are you from? He wants to know who this man is. Are you really a, a son of God? Are you a divine being? Are you a deity? He becomes afraid. Jesus gave him no answer. Again, Jesus is silent. If Pilate had been listening in, in the earlier interview in 18, when he asks him, are you a king? Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. Maybe Pilate would have pieced this together, that he comes from somewhere else, but he, he, he's not putting that together. Where are you from? Jesus is silent. This seems to offend Pilate to some degree. Pilate says to him, you will not speak to me? Emphasis being on the to me there. In other words, Pilate is kind of saying, to me, you're not gonna talk? To me? Don't you know who I am, in other words? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him. He breaks his silence. He looks at him, he says, you would have no authority 
over me at all, unless it had been given to you from above. And therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. He who delivered me over to you. Jesus kind of thinking through how he got there was talking about the Jewish leaders, yes. Talking about the high priest Caiaphas, yeah. But I think even further back, I think Jesus might be referring to Judas here. He who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. I think Jesus may also be referring to the great enemy himself, Satan. Jesus seeing the, the, the agenda of Satan play out. The devil, not some sub-devil, not Judas, but the devil has delivered me over to you. That's the greater sin. But you wouldn't even have authority over me unless it's been given to you from above. Pilate, military man, is probably thinking chain of command. My authority does come from above. It comes from Caesar, ultimately. Jesus is not talking chain of command, earthly terms. He's talking spiritual. The authority you have over me is from God. Now, this is significant. It's reminiscent of Jesus talking in John chapter 10 as he describes himself as the good shepherd in which he says, I have authority to lay down my life and I have authority to take it back up. Jesus, when he commissions his disciples, the great commission, Matthew chapter 28, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. Jesus holds all authority. It all belongs to him, which means anyone in a position of leadership has authority on loan from God on high. That's what Jesus is talking about here. You don't have authority over me unless it's been given to you. Jesus is submitting himself to the will of the Father by allowing this political, corrupted political leader to play out this agenda, his plan. Last week, Charlie kind of teased us with this. Man, wouldn't you love a, a, a sermon that focused on how God's you know, redemptive narrative and God's agenda can be advanced even by leveraging the, corrupt, the corrupted and evil plans of this world? And everyone was like, yeah, that'd be a great sermon. And he was like, yeah, we're not gonna talk about that this morning. I'm like, oh, okay. But that's what we see right here. Pilate is actually advancing the plan of God. Jesus reveals, you don't have authority over me. I think this is actually a larger statement. I think as we think about our own lives and we think about the things that seem to have power over us, the, the things we can't seem to break free from, the, the, the things we seem defeated by so often, they have no power over you except what they're allowed. In other words, Jesus is saying, this isn't permanent. This isn't forever. You don't have power unless it's been given to you. You think you're in charge, but you're not. You don't hold the power. You've been allowed a certain amount of time, but I know someone who holds time in his hands. That's where the power belongs. And ultimately, victory is with God, not by our circumstances. He's pointing us back to God's control and sovereignty and power. And therefore, I think Jesus here, Jesus is the king who is showing us, who is modeling to us a better way of power. Jesus is the king who models a better way of power. Jesus has all authority. Jesus is in control at any moment. He could snap his fingers and say, I'm done with this, I, enough, and it would all be done. And yet he submits himself to this corrupted political leader and these corrupted religious leaders. John wants us to see these systems, how easy it is for religion to become corrupted through their own agendas, 
lack of character, lack of integrity, pushing their own ways and rules to accomplish their own things. And he wants us to see the corrupted political system, how people in power abuse it and manipulate it and think that they have true power when it's from God to begin with. And yet he who holds all power, what is Jesus doing? He's submitting himself. He empties himself, Paul says in Philippians 2. He gives himself over. Jesus models to us a better way of power. A true leader who doesn't abuse power or manipulate power or forfeit his character to advance his agenda. Jesus models to us true power comes through humility. True power comes through emptying yourself to serve others. The king of kings became servant of servants. True power comes not when you try to grab more and manipulate and deceive and try to elevate yourself. True power comes when you submit yourself to the Father. The image of victory for those who say that we belong to the King, those who are in the kingdom of God, true victory is not a sword but a cross. That's the image of victory for us. And as people of Jesus, we cannot, cannot adopt the methodologies of this world which grab power through corrupted means, which elevate themselves by violating their own conscience. We must take after the model of Jesus to be a servant, to be humble, to empty ourselves, to trust the Father. He models a better way of power. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not a friend of Caesar's. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Pilate wanted to be done with Jesus. He was afraid at this point. Is he divine? Is he a representation of a deity? I just want to be done. My wife told me about, I should have listened. He, he just wants to be done. He sought to release Jesus, but the Jews cried out all the more. If you release him, you're not Caesar's friend. You know what they're doing? Again, manipulation of power, corruption, Pilate is on thin ice right now, and the, Jew, and the Jewish leaders know it. Pilate has been in his office seat for about five years, and he's had three huge blunders during his time. One of these Jesus refers to, actually, in Luke chapter 13, verse 1. But he's made three big mistakes, which have led to rebellions and deaths from the Jewish people and the Roman soldiers. He's on thin ice. He's on a short leash, and he knows it. And basically what the Jewish leaders are saying is, if you don't kill him, we'll go to Caesar. We will tell on you. He's claimed to be a king. If you don't kill him, basically what you're saying is Caesar's not your king. That's the leveraging point that they're using. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, look at this. This political leader is violating his own conscience for the sake of self-preservation. He wants to let him go. He's declared him not guilty. He knows he shouldn't do it, but he fears for his own life. He fears for his own political position, his status, his power. He violates his conscience to give in to the peer pressure of the crowd. Still going on today. They leveraged this with Pilate. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out. He sat him he sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. And now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, 
behold your king. Kind of slips back into his mockery. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said one last time, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, a lie through their teeth. We have no king but Caesar. They hated Caesar. They despised Caesar. Rome has oppressed the Jewish. They don't, Caesar's not their king. And here is their chance to have God as their king, Jesus as their king. And they put him to death. And so Pilate delivered him over to them to be crucified. They come, they bring Jesus to Pilate to be crucified. And in the end, Pilate gives Jesus back to them to be crucified. We tend to think of the crucifixion as nothing but Roman soldiers carrying it out, in which they were certainly there, nailing his hands and feet to the cross, stabbing him with a spear, mocking him on the cross. But Jesus was given back to the Jewish leaders. They had some hand in this whole act of crucifixion. One of the things that John really makes a note of here, and I, I wanna highlight, he makes a note of the day and the time. It's very significant. John says, now it's Passover. It's the preparation day for Passover. He wants to bring us all the way back to the book of Exodus. Again, remember all these roads converging, this, this imagery all, is all converging. Passover is, is in Exodus. It's the 10th plague that God gave Egypt. The Hebrews, hundreds of thousands of Hebrews are enslaved to this terrible uh, leader, this king, Pharaoh. They're, they're in bondage, they're in slavery. And God instructs them, take a lamb and take the blood of the lamb, sacrifice the lamb, take its blood and paint it on your doorways. And when I come, if the blood of the lamb is on your doorways, I will pass over your house. My wrath will pass over you and spare you. And I will free you from your bondage. John, the writer of this book, is calling us back to the very first chapter of his writing in which he quotes John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, who saw Jesus from a distance and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. What John wants us to notice by mentioning the specific date and time that it is preparation for Passover. He wants us to connect these dots. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is our sacrifice who takes away the sins of the world. The blood of our lamb is spread upon the right angles of wood, just like it was in Exodus. It's not a doorway, but it's a cross. And our lamb is hanging there and the wrath of God will pass over us and be directed towards the curse of sin itself that through the death of Jesus, we find freedom from our bondage and slavery, slavery to the master of sin and death. John wants us to see that Jesus is the sacrifice who takes away our sins. He is our Passover lamb. He is the one who frees us from sin and death. He is the one who releases us from our bondage. He is the one who took the curse through his blood shed on the cross. Why? Why all this? This passage is John combining multiple images. God became man. The curse of man placed upon the God-man. 
the imagery of the thorns bestowed on his head, the imagery of a king bestowed on his back, the lashes that were due to us because of our sin given to him so that we can be healed, the corruptive nature of sin that happens to us spiritually and internally given to him externally, the revelation that he holds all power and yet he is submitting himself to this process for our sake, the lamb that is here taking away our sins and releasing us from the bondage of sin. John is creating a multi-leveled imagery of what Jesus is doing, why? Because it expresses the heart of God and because he's identifying with us in this moment. It expresses the heart of God and he's identifying with us. Jesus indeed is the son of God and he is the king of Israel. It's already actually been proclaimed by Nathanael in John chapter one, verse 49. You have the God-man, the king of all men and women in our place, identifying with our plight and inviting us into his righteousness. That's our king. That's our God. That's the man. Let's pray. Jesus, there's no words. And thank you seems to fall pretty short. You healed our curse by becoming our curse. You showed us what a pure and good use of power looks like when so much of what we see in the world today is corruption and deceit and manipulation. We don't know who to trust. We don't know what's right. We hear alternate stories and sides all the time. And you showed us a a model of power with integrity. You submitted yourself to the Father for our sake. You became our sacrifice. You are the Passover lamb that took our sins and freed us from our bondage. Jesus, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you. We love you. And we pray this morning that you would draw our hearts to these beautiful truths as we respond in worship. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.